If I could have you uh, return to your seats as we take some time to study God's Word together. We are continuing our book study of the book of John. And for those of you that have, you know, just come and gone, whatever, that's fine. Um, we are in the midst of Jesus' last um, discussion or, or last monologues with his disciples. If you look at the book of John, it can be broken up into three different parts. The first part is the first 12 chapters of the book that covers a lot of the ministry of Jesus and where he went and what he did. And then chapters 13 through 17 consist of one moment with Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, and he's teaching them some very important aspects, and that's where we find ourselves in the book today, and we'll, we'll focus in on one aspect of that time. And finally, chapters 18 through 21 focus on Jesus' passion, which is his death, his resurrection, and his time with the disciples. So that's how the book of John's broken up, and that's where we find ourselves in um, the book of John today, Jesus' time with his disciples before he begins his passion. And so John 16, verses 4 through 15, is our text this morning. So if you have a Bible or if you have the bulletin, you can read along with me there. Let's read. Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Would you pray with me as we study, before we study God's word? Oh, Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so what I ask that you would do today is you would light our path with the truth of your word before us. Spirit of God, lead the way, and may we follow. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wrestled with doubts, especially doubts concerning the Christian faith? You don't doubt miracles, doubt the resurrection, it's okay to admit that. It might sound strange for a pastor to be talking about doubts because many have come to believe that doubts are some of the greatest sins that a church could ever have. I want to tell you this, that I have my own doubts, not doubts overall, but there are times when I doubt, and I have doubted, doubted significant questions to life, significant Bible passages, and frankly, it makes my mind hurt and I'd like to know some of these answers to these questions where my doubts come. Perhaps like me, when you're in, these, in the midst of these situations and wrestling with doubts, the thought might creep into your mind, if only Jesus were here, like physically with me right here, that I might ask him the questions that riddle my mind and keep me up at night. 
If, I were he, if he were here, I could maybe see the scars in his hands and believe that he did indeed die and rose again. If he were here, perhaps I could see the miracles that the Bible speaks to, and I would be confident in the decision that I have in following after Jesus. Of course, the reality is Jesus is not physically with us, and having our doubts relieved is not an option in having Jesus here. The question is, in the midst of our doubts and the ability that Jesus can't be here physically, is this a bad thing? Is Jesus' physical absence a detriment to our faith? Perhaps you're convinced it is, that you only believe him if there's tangible, visible evidence that your eyes can see that you'll believe. And I can understand that. But a sincere and honest question that you must wrestle with is what would Jesus say to your conclusions? Would Jesus say, it is better that you see me, that you see the, the scars in my hand and me risen for the dead? Is it better? Well, how would Jesus answer that question? Well, I think Jesus answers that question for us in John 16 very clearly. And the answer to that question would be, actually, it's better that I'm not there physically. John 16, 5 says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I mean, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes for just a moment. You've, let's say that you followed Jesus for three years. You've seen him do the miracles. You've seen him cast out demons. You've seen him teach and have people eating out of the palm of his hands. And he's saying to them, I'm getting ready to go. And, and he says, it's actually to your advantage. The disciples have to be thinking, are you crazy? There's no way you leaving here is to our advantage. And the reason why they couldn't believe this is because they had no concept of the helper that Jesus said is coming. I think like the disciples, many of us fall into this temptation to believe if I only had Jesus physically present, things and doubts would be resolved. One of the reasons why we do this and resolve to this is because we don't have a Holy Spirit perspective. That we, we have almost like a dualistic reality of the nature of God. That we don't realize that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is so profound about Jesus pressing into the disciples saying, it is to your advantage that I go away, is that he focuses their attention on the Holy Spirit, who he says will come. And the Holy Spirit, he says, is going to be greater it's going to be a better advantage for you than ever before. I want us to focus on the Holy Spirit as Jesus presents us to so that we might see the advantage that we have right now. Right now, the advantage that we have over the disciples who saw Jesus with their own eyes. And it's very simple. Jesus gives the disciples three reasons why the Holy Spirit is to their advantage and to our advantage. And, and I'm going to show you the three things really simply. We're going to walk through this, and then we're going to focus in on one of those aspects. There's three reasons why the Holy Spirit is of advantage to the disciples and to us who are in Christ, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. First, the Spirit convicts. We see that in verses 8 through 11. The Holy Spirit convicts. He convicts. And this is where we're going to focus most all of our attention on this morning, so I'm not going to dive into that. Secondly, the Holy Spirit guides. This is what something you can find in verses 12 through 13. There, Jesus tells the disciples 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. The Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit guides them into the truth. And really what Jesus is saying into this is, there's a lot that's about to happen. My death, my resurrection, my ascension. And the Holy Spirit's gonna help you understand all of that. The Holy Spirit guides. Lastly, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will declare to you what is mine. Whatever is mine, he declares it to you. So the Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit guides, and the Holy Spirit declares. These are some powerful, impactful uh, realities for the life of all disciples. And in truth, I, 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 I could spend three different weeks on each of these three realities of the Holy Spirit, his conviction, his guiding, and his declaration. But for our sake, for your sake, we're gonna focus on one of those that we might not be here till after lunch. So we're gonna focus on the Spirit's conviction. The Spirit's conviction. And Jesus gives us a lot in the Spirit's conviction. But what I want us to see more than anything is that when we see what the Holy Spirit does and how he convicts, that indeed it is far better that the Holy Spirit is here and not Jesus physically. So let's study this. What is this Jesus talking about? That the Spirit is actually our advantage in this conviction. Let's read verses 8 through 11 again so that you might be familiar with this. Focus your attention on this. Verse 8. And when he comes, that is Jesus talking about the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now he explains very specifically what each of these things mean. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. If the disciples thought that Jesus was a force to be reckoned with in his physical presence, Jesus is looking at them and he's like, look at me. Wait till you see the Spirit. It's going to blow your mind. So he focuses their attention in three different ways that the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So first, concerning sin. This is an important theological and anthropological statement that Jesus makes in this one verse. Essentially, Jesus is saying, people will not believe that I am the Lord. And believing that Jesus is not Lord is a sin. But he says the Spirit will come and will convict people concerning this sin. That people will realize Jesus is Lord. I have not been following him, and I stand condemned because of my sin. Put easily, God the Spirit will be the one that brings about saving faith. It is not a human telling a profound argument to convince someone of their sin that Jesus is not Lord. It is the work of the Spirit. This truth is attested to by Jesus himself in his ministry. Recall what he told Nicodemus in chapter 3. I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that brings about conviction of sin and pointing people to Jesus as Lord. It is the Spirit who does this. The Apostle Paul, I think he's, he's meditating on John 3 when he writes Ephesians 2. 
And he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We have to see the significance of what Jesus is saying and who he's telling this to. Jesus is telling his disciples, it is better that I go away because when the Spirit comes, he's going to bring conviction of sin. Now, they don't know this, but the disciples are going to be tasked with continuing the message of Jesus' hope and forgiveness and life to the world. And they're going to remember what Jesus says about what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is going to bring conviction of sin. So those of you know that, that know your Bible, you might know Acts 2. Acts 2 is when the Spirit has descended upon the disciples and they're going out and they're preaching the gospel. And if you've ever read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, you might kind of like fall asleep during the sermon. I mean, it's like, man, this is dry bones. This is like, whoa. But do you know what happened when Jesus or Peter preached this, what feels like a dry bone sermon? Thousands were converted. Thousands. Why? Was it because of Peter's fantastic sermon or his profound realities? It was not. It was because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches them when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of their sin, their sin concerning Jesus as Lord. Look, I've been in ministry and life for a very long time, and I know some of you cannot relate to this, but I want to share a little bit of my experience of being a minister and being in a church culture because I think it's relevant to several of you in here. You see, there's this weird culture amongst ministers and amongst leaders in the church that there's this demand for growth and demand to see people come to faith. And you have to raise money to support your work. And one of the ways you raise money is you show off how many people have come to faith. And there's this weird temptation and then there's this weird guilt and weird self-contempt that can arise if people aren't coming to Jesus and, and the gospel is not going forth the way that the world wants us or the church world wants us to come. And I have beaten myself up and I'm sure there's ministry leaders that have beaten themselves up because they have not seen people come to Jesus, come to see them repent of their sins. And what I want to tell you and what I tell myself it's not your job to convict people of their sin. It is not your job. You don't have that kind of power. You don't. Paul says they're dead in your trespasses. Do you have the power to resurrect? You do not. That only comes from the Spirit. And the Spirit uses our broken words, our feeble attempts, our weak efforts to bring people to life because this is the work of the Spirit. He convicts them towards sin. So rest assured, friends of you that are in ministry. Rest assured, those of you who long for your neighbors to know Jesus. Rest assured, those of you that, that minister to people all around this city, all around this state, all around this country. Rest assured, you have the most powerful force on your side, God himself, using you. It's a powerful, powerful reality. 
But Jesus says, not only will the Holy Spirit convict the world concerning the sin. Secondly, Jesus says, he will convict the world concerning righteousness. And he says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, I want you to focus on that. Perhaps go ahead and read that again because it is very strange and it makes very little sense. It's a strange statement and, I, and, and, and it's, it's bizarre. What's going on here? In truth, it gives scholars fits too. But let me tell you what I think Jesus is getting at here. We're gonna have to break down what Jesus says that he convicts the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. We know three things from this particular phrase that he says. We know that the Spirit is coming and that Jesus is going to the Father and that this will bring about the conviction of righteousness. Now, righteousness in a very simple form is doing that which is right. If you wanna think about it, it's doing that which is right and good. And it's this phrase, the conviction of righteousness, that I think is, uh, is key to unpacking what Jesus is saying about you will no longer see me in the spirit coming. Now, let's look at this. You see, when Jesus was present in ministry, when, when he walked and, and moved amongst this earth, there was something incredibly profound about Jesus. He was righteous. And his righteousness was upsetting to people and comforting to others. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, who were the people that his righteousness upset? It was the religious. Now, why did Jesus' righteousness upset the religious, the people who are doing what's right and good? It's because the religious and those who think they are righteous find so much life from their being good. They find so much life from looking at someone who's struggling, whether it be a prostitute, whether it be a drug-addicted person, whether it be whoever. Think of the worst person you know, and they find so much life going, <laughs> so much better than that person, thank God. And Jesus' righteousness got under their skin. His rightness led to his death. There's something about the way that Jesus has lived that got under the skin of the righteous, the quote-unquote righteous, the religious. But what did the righteousness of Jesus do for the irreligious? Think about this. What did, who, who were coming to Jesus? It was the tax collectors, some of the most hated people in all of Israel. It was the prostitutes, some of the most despised people who were coming to Jesus. I mean, it literally turns our perception of what the church is, is like this holy huddle. But in truth, Jesus was the opposite of that. He was going in the world and people of the world were coming to him going, there's something about him. And what was it about them? They realized, man, I'm broken. I'm in need, and I think this guy's got what I need. Rather than feeling like, like the religious, self-righteous people, that Jesus was a threat to their own livelihood, the people who saw Jesus and they saw his love and his joy and his peace and his kindness, when they saw that, they were attracted to that, and they go, I need that. So how is this working in the life of the Spirit? And, and how is it that Jesus saying, me going to the Father and his righteousness and the Spirit, how does it all come? Here's how it is. 
The spirit that is coming is the same spirit of Christ. And that spirit dwells in the hearts and minds of every person who is a part of Christ. So you don't have one physical Christ. You've got billions of Christ all over the world. Why? By the power of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling presence of the Spirit. I'm going to the Father, Jesus says, at the right hand of God, but who's he gonna send? The Spirit. And what does Paul say about the Spirit in Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The very righteous characteristics of Jesus himself. So you want to know what this does for our world? <laughs> it's going to upset the righteous, the people who, who look at their lives and go, I've, I've done a pretty good job, and I, they haven't, and I feel good about myself. It's going to unsettle them. But the people who feel like, man, I have blown it, I have not done like, like, I am convicted of the lack of righteousness in my life. But those people, there's a joy about them that I'm unfamiliar with, and I want that. That's what the Spirit does in all of us who have looked to Christ. And friends, that is far better than one person walking the streets of Galilee. So when you go to your neighborhoods, you are the light of Christ in the midst of that. Not because you're great, but because of the indwelling spirit. When you go to your office and you're working with coworkers who are so antithetical to Christian views and you have to wrestle with how to deal with those coworkers, the indwelling spirit giving you patience and to deal with that is the light of Jesus in their world. And this, guess what it's going to do? It's going to convict them of their righteousness. Because where Jesus was, that's what he did. So Jesus says the Spirit will come to convict people of their sin. And this is a great gift because the power to resurrect people spiritually is not on our shoulders. And Jesus says the Spirit will come to convict them of their righteousness. And there is a part in which we are dwelling this reality. That we are going to have the fruits of the Spirit that's going to convict the righteous, the righteous, the religious, of their sin of self-righteousness and the irreligious of their need for the righteousness of Jesus. But lastly, Jesus says, it is important that I go because the Spirit will come to, um, excuse me, concerning judgment, convict them concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, once again, we have this strange statement in verse 11. What is going on here? Like when we hear judgment in the Bible, we often think of like the final judgment, people going to hell and people going to heaven. And I think there is a sense where there's an element of that because you've got the rule of this world is judged. But that's not necessarily what the Holy Spirit's conviction of judgment is referring to. What the Spirit, what Jesus is focusing is, is what the Spirit comes. When he comes, it's gonna bring a different kind of judgment. It's gonna bring a judgment of a decision. So for example, when we have to decide between two things, you might hear someone say, I'm gonna use my best judgment. So it's a decision. 
And so the Holy Spirit is going to bring conviction concerning their decision, their judgment about Jesus. Is Jesus good or is Jesus bad? This is what, this is what the Holy Spirit's going to do in us. And reality is there's two forces, Jesus says. There's Jesus or the rule of this world or Satan. There's good or bad. But Jesus says the Spirit's going to remind them that the bad has been judged. Now, how in the, how in the world is the Spirit going to convict the world that the, the, the ruler of this world is judged? Let's dive into the ruler of this world. Think about this. How is the world run? What does the world seek? What does the world want more than anything else in all of life? Power, glory, fame, you name it. How do you get power, glory, fame, you name it? You buck up, you work hard, you smash others, and you get after it. This is the way of Satan. Do it yourself. Do you remember what, what Satan said to Adam and Eve? Did God really say that? You can be like gods. You can have power. And they believed it. The, the ruler of this world wants you to seek glory, wants you to seek fame, wants you to seek that which is greatest. And the way that you seek that is through your own strength, your own power, your own abilities. But Jesus presents the opposite. The point of this life is not to glorify oneself, to prop oneself up. It's actually to give oneself away for the sake of Christ that you might find life. Jesus says, you want to find life, you must lose it. And this is exactly what Jesus did. How can he say the rule of this world is judged? Because he himself was judged in its place. And he triumphed over the one who wants power, glory, and fame for himself by giving his life on the cross. But the cross, of course, was not the end. It was the resurrection. I mean, the resurrection was the greatest judgment against the ruler of this world, the, the person who seeks power, glory, and fame. Why? Because he lost his life and in losing it, he was exalted and resurrected. That glory comes and life comes, not by going up, by going down. Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. We aren't told to work for something or do something that is out of our control. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But we are called to go low, to serve the weak and the least of these. People will see that there's life in that. I want to, I guess, peel back a curtain of my own soul for you to illustrate what I think is certainly true. Uh, this week I was in counseling and we were talking about self-judgment, my own self-judgment towards myself. A lot of the reasons, I've, I kind of talked about it in that first point, I've judged myself by the number of people in the church and falling into these lies and whatever, blah, blah, blah. 
And we did this exercise, and I imagined, we kind of imagined this person who was kind of like myself. I know this is weird. But this person had a knife to my throat. He's like, you better do this. So the counselor had, why don't you talk to it? What are you talking about? Talk to my person. Like, okay, all right, I'm going to lean into this. And he goes, if you hear him say something to you, let me know. I was like, all right. <laughs> and I asked him, why are you here? And you know what that person said? I'm here for your glory. I'm here for your glory. If I'm not here, you're not going to be motivated to do the things necessary to build a big church, to be a famous preacher. If I'm not here, and he said some pretty nasty words to me, if you want to know the truth, I'm going to share this around here, but there were some nasty words. And I, again, I told that to the counselor, and he says, keep talking to him. It's like, okay. <laughs> and I didn't really say anything, and the next thing I know, I walk up to this guy with this sword, like one of these crescent swords, and that's not like a little thing. And I went up to him and I just smacked the sword out of his hand. <laughs> the counselor goes, what did he do? I said, he took out a dagger. <laughs> I said, okay, just watch, listen. So I went up to him again. Boom, I smacked the dagger out of his hand. What did he do? He said, he did nothing. And I said, at that moment, though, I felt the presence of God with me. And I felt like I was resting in a much bigger person than I ever was. <laughs> much, much bigger. And I'm resting what, in what I felt like was the presence and the spirit of God. And what he's, <laughs> what, what this person, this, this advocate in my mind, basically was like, okay, I can't mess with him anymore. And it's not because of me, but because of Jesus. And in that moment, I started to weep because this is what I realized. I have been seeking my glory so much according to what I do, how I say, the way that the church is run. I have bowed the knee to this person with this sword who's been seeking my own glory, and it's been killing me. But yet, when I knock the sword out of his hands because I've got this powerful spiritual presence behind me who is on my side, and I'm resting in him, my heart goes, to you be the glory, to you be the honor, to you be the fame. I don't care about the glory. I care about your glory. And guess what arose in my heart? These were not tears of sadness. They were tears of joy because in giving my life to someone else's, I found life. It is the pattern of Jesus, not the pattern of this world. And it is the spirit that brings conviction concerning judgment. Jesus is greater than our adversary. Jesus is the one who gives life, and his way is the way downward, not upwards. And it's the spirit that convinces us of this, and it is the spirit that reminds us, and from time to time gives us the rest and the belief indeed you be the glory, and this is where life comes from. I mean, you just see it right in these, what, three, four verses? It is better that the Spirit is with us 
rather than Jesus. Now, I want to remind you what happened to the disciples because I find the last, the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes to be some of the most fascinating um, historical realities of Scripture. One of the things that took place is the disciples cowered in fear to the Jews in the midst of this phase. John 20 tells us this. They literally had the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And they knew Jesus was resurrected, or at least they had heard from Mary Magdalene that Jesus was resurrected, but they were in fear. And then you, you kind of see them, they're, they're kind of like lost. Like, what do we do? How do we do this? Like, I don't know. These 40 days were very strange. You see them fishing, you know. It's a very fascinating day. But then Pentecost hits. When the Spirit, when Jesus ascends and then he sends the Spirit as he promised the disciples in John 16 would happen. And everything changed. These scared, directionless disciples get incredible courage and they find great direction and they scattered the world and they've changed it. Why? Because the Spirit's with them. You and I are amongst billions of people around the globe right now that are worshiping and considering God's word and how it gives us direction in life. We're, we are bunch of billions of people doing that very thing. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. What an incredible God we have. A triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We have. He is unbelievable. I want you to know that. You can doubt. That's okay. It's good to wrestle with your doubts. It's good to think those things. But it is far better to have the Spirit and Jesus. Let's pray. Our triune God, we give thanks to you for how you have worked in this world. You've created it. You've redeemed it through your Son and are now in the process of redeeming it through your people by the power of your spirit. May indeed, Lord, we be a people here at Central Hope who bring light to our communities. May we display the fruits of the spirit in our neighborhoods, in our offices, in our schools, and all over the place. Lord, may we give thanks to you for what you've done. May our life be about you, that we might indeed find life. I pray all of this in Jesus' name.